Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our online event, Europe in the Time of Coronavirus, responding to the political and economic challenges of COVID-19. My name is Esra Özürek, and I'm professor in European Anthropology and chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies at the LSE European Institute. And I'm very pleased to be chairing this event today and pleased to welcome our panel. Chris Anderson, Professor in European Politics and Policy, LSE European Institute. Waltraud Schelke, Professor in Political Economy, LSE European Institute. And Simon Glendening, Professor in European Philosophy and Head of the LSE European Institute. For those Twitter users in audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technological difficulties. As usual, there will be the chance for you to put your questions to the panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I'll pose as many possible questions to the speakers. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni, and incoming students, so please let us know. Now I'm delighted to hand over to Professor Anderson, who will begin our discussion with a focus on European responses to the COVID-19 pandemic and public opinion throughout Europe. Chris, please go ahead. Thank you very much, Ezra. Good afternoon, everyone. It's really great to see so many of you have joined us this afternoon to talk about Europe uh, during this time of crisis. What I will do really quickly is try and share my screen with you and show you a few pictures and talk you through a few slides. Um, let's see if we can make that happen. Here we go. Right, so you should see a blank screen because I will say a couple of things first. Um, one of the reasons this is an especially important time, I believe, and an especially interesting time to people like me is because this crisis really has highlighted uh, the tension between the state and governments on one hand and citizens and what they do on the other, and really the relationship between citizens and the state. Um, and so in a way, we seem to be living through an extraordinary time where that relationship becomes redefined, re-established, and certainly put under a lot of strain. We're under threat from a virus we don't entirely understand. Um, this risk has produced a, a public health crisis of enormous proportions, an economic crisis of historic proportions. Um, but what it's also done, uh, other than made people afraid for their health and well-being, it has put historic restrictions on our liberties. It has made enormous demands on our sacri on sacrifice, really forced sacrifice from citizens in order to keep us all well and to keep themselves well. And so what, if you think about it, what this really means is that this is a time where people have asked to make sacrifices, to give consent to government policies they didn't necessarily ask for, um, and to comply with what you can only call something like a wartime mobilization effort to keep everyone alive and well. And so what that requires is, of course, a, a competent political actors, but also trust from citizens in those political actors and governmental institutions in charge of providing for the, for the public health and well-being. These are national efforts, and we'll talk about this as part of our panel today. 
where supranational actors aren't necessarily involved in sort of on the front lines, so to speak. So this be has become a relationship yet again between citizens and the nation state during a time of crisis. But it's also a very interesting time if you think about it from the perspective of citizens, because really what it's done is it's asked us to comply, it's taken away our liberties, but it's also given us an historic opportunity to hold people in office accountable. On the 16th of March, Emmanuel Macron went on French television at eight o'clock in the evening and told the French people, we are at war. I presume not too many presidents uh, in too many countries around the world get the opportunity to go on primetime television and say, we are at war, and to ask for the mobilization of the French people in that war against the crisis. This is where the state, the French state, through the person of Macron, says to the French people, I need you to come to the aid of the state and to the aid of each other by following the rules that we're laying down. It's an extraordinary ask made in front of, I think, the biggest television audience ever recorded in French history. Um, and it's certainly not something you do lightly or easily. Um, and Macron, while perhaps an extreme example of that kind of uh, appeal to the French people, wasn't the only actor, the only um, governmental actor around the world doing this kind of um, making this kind of an appeal. In fact, what we saw over the last few months is that virtually every country in the world, every government around the world has, in, has enforced uh, and certainly passed some kind of restriction on people's liberties and lives, uh, has asked people to, to keep distance from one another, to not go to work, to keep their kids at home. Um, and these extraordinary efforts have been widespread all around the world. They differ, and we'll talk a little bit about how they've differed, uh, but what we see is that this has happened everywhere. Just to show you a little bit of data, um, as the crisis unfolded, on, on the bottom there you see the number of COVID cases in a country, and then there's an index of stringency of how restrictive governments have been. When you look at countries around the world, certainly in the OECD countries for which I have data here, what you see is a very strong relationship. Every dot here is a country in time, at a point in time. As the COVID cases have increased, so have governmental restrictions uh, with regard to work, travel, social distancing, you name it, we're all familiar with them. And so while Macron may have been very dramatic, uh, every country in the world has followed the same script. As the risk increased, as the threat increased, so have the restrictions. Um, we've talked about differences across countries. Different countries have handled it differently. This is the same a uh, similar kind of graph where you have deaths on the left and the stringency on the right. So the red line is the stringency of governmental restrictions. And the black line is the number of deaths that have occurred as, as, a, as a function of the virus. The German government has done things differently than the Swedish government, than the UK government. But how have they been different? The German government very early on, as you see in the red line, it started to enforce restrictions on people's liberties and the virus didn't really take off. The red line comes before the gray line and did fairly early on. Sweden also had early restrictions, but at a lower level, right? Germany, Sweden, lower level, and the virus didn't take off. But once it did take off, the Swedish government didn't follow suit. It kept restrictions at a relatively more modest level international, in international comparison. Whereas the German government went to a fairly high level fairly early on. 
Here in the UK, we've seen a different pattern where we've had modest restrictions, public information campaigns um, fairly early on, but then the virus got ahead. You see the black line taking off and the government not keeping, keeping pace, right? Up to a point where then the virus really was able to expand exponentially. So clearly three different kinds of stories about how governments have handled the virus, but truthfully, all of them have enabled restrictions on people's liberties. And here we see a good picture of the late British lock lockdown. Um, this is from the, I think the Sunday Times, which had an article about this a few, year, a few weeks ago. Uh, Britain ran late. Now, what have people done in reaction? In reaction to these, these historic restrictions on liberties, um, and the, the, the ask for compliance, uh, people have generally given governments the benefit of the doubt. What we've seen in, in most countries, not every country, is a rally around the flag where people became supportive and positive about governmental actors who were in charge of public health and making sure um, that the public health system was able to function. Opposition parties generally stood back and let incumbent governments do their job. And what you saw all across the, the world is this goodwill toward governments in terms of giving them the benefit of the doubt and supporting them in this time of national crisis. This is a graph of uh, leaders' approval ratings from early March through the end of April. Pick your favorite country, pick your favorite leader. Um, it generally went up. Now, Back to Mr. Macron. Macron asked the French people to stay home. This is what he did on the 16th of March. And this is what the trains coming into Paris looked like on the 17th of March. The French people listened. They complied. They did what they were asked. And here's another graph showing you some reports of the French people in terms of their personal hygiene, not going to work not touching objects in public or avoiding big crowds, which are all among the things that we've all been asked to do in virtually every advanced country around the world. The 16th of March is the red line. This is when Macron gives his speech and the report of compliant behavior goes up. And we see this in every country that we have data for. As governments became more stringent in their requests, people followed suit. They listened, they complied, they went along. Now, that's not the end of the story. That would be an interesting story in and of itself. But one of the more interesting things for me as a political scientist who studies people's trust in government and accountability is what comes next. This is just the first phase of the crisis. Citizens are in charge in a government for, by, and of the people, aren't they? And so democracy, if you think about it, is a two-way street here. It's about compliance. The state has a monopoly on power. It has the responsibility to enforce compliance with public health directives, but citizens get to hold governments accountable. And one of the most interesting um, parts of this pandemic uh, so far has been that citizens have a lot of information available to them. And they have that information available to them in real time. Um, lots of information about not only how our country is doing and what our government is doing and how we're doing in terms of dealing with this crisis and what the economic repercussions are, 
but also how other countries are doing and what, when they've been doing it and what they've been doing. So citizens, unlike in most other situations, most of the time have a lot of information at their fingertips about what their neighbors are up to in other countries and how that compares. And it gives them a unique opportunity to benchmark their own government vis-a-vis -vis other governments. And that makes it a very unusual crisis and a politically very interesting moment, I think, for Western democracies generally. Boris Johnson, just to give you an example, the Prime Minister of the UK, um, here are his favorability and unfavorability ratings. One of the quick things that you will pick up from this is that his unfavorables after getting elected were still higher than his favorables until he got sick. Famously, he became sick um, and his favorability ratings went up. As he became healthy again, his favorability dipped. And as more and more information has come out, and as more and more information has become available about the performance of the British government, I think British voters now have this opportunity to take stock of his government, but also compared to other countries around Europe, or maybe around the world. And that kind of accountability is unusual um, and a real opportunity, I think, for citizens to be in charge. Now, let me finish up with one thought. Um, this is some data from between the period of the early March and the beginning of June. And these are public opinion polls where people were asked, how supportive are you of closing schools, of working from home, canceling large events? And there are a number of other things that we can ask people to do in order to keep us all safe. And what you see in all of these, and I could show you many others, is there's a clear inverted U shape to what people are saying. Early on, they rallied. Early on, they were willing to make the sacrifice. They were willing to comply. They were willing to go along, give governments the benefit of the doubt. As time has passed, as more information has become revealed, as governments have revealed themselves to be competent or not, they have become more skeptical. They have become more critical. And perhaps they've become, they've moved from the mode of rallying around the flag to a mode of enabled citizens. And they've become much more skeptical and perhaps more impatient now with what's happened in their country with regard to these public health measures and whether they're deemed to be necessary. So I'll, I'll hand it off, I think at this point, to Professor Glendening, I believe. Uh, no, actually, Bal Schaut is next. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll hand it off to Professor Schaut now. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. I'm waiting for uh, sharing the, the, the screen as well with you. Um, it's here. What I'm doing is, um, is take this challenge in time of coronavirus as responding to the political economic challenge as you would expect from me. And luckily I see in the Q&A there's already at least one listener who's interested in what I'm going to say because while um, Chris has just said, started by saying, I look at this tension, tension but also complementarity between what governments do or want us to do and what citizens then uh, see as into their advantage. I'm looking at basically the tension between 
EU activity and, and citizens who, as we all know, have different allegiances in terms of, um, you know, do they feel more regional, local, national or, or European or citizens of the world. So what I say is the challenge is to mobilize EU solidarity, hopefully a bit beyond the EU, because as we all know, the emerging markets, uh, countries in Africa and so on, are in dire straits. And I don't want to uh, downplay this, but uh, for the moment, I concentrate on, on the EU. And just to show you, this is a, a screenshot uh, from, from the EU website, the Commission website. They totally appeal to how we would like to think about solidarity, humans protecting and emphasizing, uh, empathizing with each other, you know, uh, treating patients or countries that had spare capacity in intensive care units, took patients from other countries and treated them. Uh, we did public procurement uh, so get to, to get and have a clearing center, Europe-wide clearing center for uh, personal protective equipment so that uh, health workers and citizens, key workers in care homes and so on, can be protected. Um, and 500,000 Europeans were flown home from all over the world. And again, there was cooperation between European countries. Now, I'm saying this as if they said, oh, wonderfully, the machine just worked. It wasn't quite like that. You may all remember that. Uh, heartbreaking and excruciating response in the beginning when Italy asked for medical equipment and uh, there was a civil protection mechanism they wanted to be uh, activated. The European Commission, which has actually a commissioner for crisis management, um, activated that crisis, uh, that civic protection mechanism and the response from the European member states was stern uh, silence, while Cuba, China, Russia sent, perhaps symbolically, some doctors, some equipment, and so on. This, is a, this was the first impression, and I fear an impression that actually stuck a bit with the EU, even though when you look at this website, and we know also a little bit of what happened in other federal states, the EU's response is actually quite constructive and it has managed to get over this phase relatively quickly. But even some of you may think, no, they actually failed. And it is to some extent puzzling and disheartening to see that after a decade in which the EU was permanently in crisis mode, emergency politics, as one of our colleagues, Jonathan White calls this, and they couldn't then kind of immediately get back into this mode when we when we needed it in a pandemic. What is, what we should, when we try to mobilize this EU solidarity, uh, then we have to keep in mind that even interpersonal solidarity, so these, the humans empathizing with each other, depends on the type of shock. So colleagues of mine, Björn Bremer, uh, Philip Genschel and Markus Yachtenfuchs have just published a paper that is based on a, on a poll that asks uh, 11 in 11 member states, you will see them in a minute, um, and here it's aggregate, whether they would be ready or in, are in favor would support horizontal transfers, i.e. transfers between countries 
in in five cases, in five uh, calamities that can hit you. So debt, public debt, private debt, unemployment shock, refuge, a, a huge influx of, of refugees, a military attack, or natural disaster. And we see that things go down uh, as we move from debt to unemployment refugees to the natural disasters. Most sympathy and most solidarity is expressed in cases of a natural disaster. You see that in the light gray support column. I would like to still say, and this is to some extent also what the literature now discusses it, that perhaps among the citizens there is more solidarity than you would expect or that our elites, when they speak in Brussels, make us expect. Because even for debt and unemployment, there is a majority in the aggregate of these 11 countries. Now, when we look a bit more closely, um, and for some reason I have us all in the in the picture here, oh, now I have taken it away. So you see here on the bottom, the, the acronyms for these 11 countries in which that poll was done. You see immediately that the countries to the, to the right from Germany, Denmark, uh, Britain, Finland, France, and Sweden, that for example, for, uh, natural, uh, for unemployment and debt, a majority is not in favor of, um, of, of supporting, supporting another country when it is afflicted by this calamity. And generally you would say even Lithuania and Poland are very close to where the country is basically split. Now, how can that be reconciled with this other uh, data that we have on the, on the left? You can see that Basically, in these countries, because you have on the and the vertical axis average net support, meaning you could classify between one and minus one how much you like or dislike such support to another member state. And there seems to be minorities that have a very strong dislike for solidarity in these cases, which drives the country below uh, the, 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 the orange zero line, even though there is enough, a majority has not quite such strong preferences for solidarity that gives us in the aggregate actually a pro-solidarity movement, but there is a strong minority that really does not like this. Um, where, would, where would the corona crisis come in? In a later paper, and I recently visited a, a, a webinar where uh, Genshin and Yacht Fuchs present their latest work on this, they ask actually for the coronavirus crisis or a health crisis. And it is somewhere between unemployment, uh, between uh, the, the, the natural disaster and the military attack. So you find strong support, but not quite as strong as a natural disaster. Now, how would we interpret that? Why do people react so differently depending on the type of shock? Most economists would tell you this is because one expects that for debt and unemployment, you have yourself as a country choices and it's a bit your own fault. So if we would then exercise a lot of solidarity, the, I, the, the suspicion is we would uh, get moral hazard, i.e. more risk-taking, less uh, sensible fiscal policy or uh, less labor market policies that, that create high employment rather than unemployment. 
Now, the first thing when we then this this seems to uh, you know completely go against the ability for us to mobilize interstate solidarity, even though I told you earlier, the EU actually, even compared to federal states, doesn't have to hide in, in what it could uh, mobilize within two or three months. The truth is, however, it has to mobilize this against the backdrop of relentlessly bad news. I have here a little graph that is from the EU spring forecast, so the Commission's spring forecast, in which you see how deep the recession was for uh, a number of countries, five countries you see there, uh, Germany, France, Italy, Sweden, uh, Spain and the Netherlands, in the Great Depression on average, they fell by minus 11%, although there was quite a bit of difference. In the OPEC oil crisis, very low uh, uh, drop, the exception is Italy. And then the recent global financial crisis, 2007-9, was on average minus 4.6, almost 5%. Okay, with big differences, and if you had Greece there, you would certainly see a much bigger drop. What is now projected is that we have something like minus 8% for this crisis. So it is a truly bad crisis. Those of us who are old enough who lived through the last one uh, can see that, you know, compared to this, this is almost double as, as bad. And for countries like Greece, it's closer to the, the number that we see for the Great Depression. Um, however, I think, and I hope it's not just wishful thinking, this is also to some extent a moral opportunity in the sense, given our, our recent memory of a crisis, how bad it was, we can take this as, and it's for me an explanation of why we actually saw solidarity and more than you would expect when you say everybody just fights for themselves as it looked initially, that we step back and see what is our collective responsibility? What do we owe each other in terms of protection? What can the residents of each member state of such a union expect in terms of support from each other? Um, and it is, a, it is also one of the issues that, for example, the welfare state literature discusses. If moral hazard were so rampant and people were so afraid always as, about moral hazard as much as our, some of our governments uh, say at the EU level when they want to prevent any solidarity, you wonder why we have such big welfare states and why it is such a pervasive and robust and expanding uh, uh, social phenomenon. The major question that is partly my own research is, do we allow financial markets again to divide us? And this is, again, of course, the big debate about having some common fiscal capacity that can help us to deal with it and not let financial markets pick up particular countries that are then have to deal with punishing conditions on some huge uh, uh, support that they get. So what was the collective response? First of all, you often see how the, you know, how big the liquidity is for the banks and how big the, how low their refinancing rates are. I have here the composite credit cost indicators. So an average, a weighted average of interest rates on different types of bank loans for households and firms. 
and you see how much they have come down. Uh, a corporate uh, borrower pays hardly 1% these days. There is sometimes a problem that they are rationed. In other words, they don't get the credit at any price. But uh, even that seems not to be such big of a problem or is, is targeted now by the ECBs with the so-called targeted long-term refinancing operations where you only get the refinancing at very good conditions if you actually pass it on to borrowers in the non-financial economy and households, the same thing. Then, this is arguably from the Commission website, but I mean, you can just look at what, what has been done. Uh, you see on the one hand, the very early on, the ESM was mobilized with 240 billion, where you condition-free can borrow up to 2% of your GDP. Then the European Investment Bank has been brought in. They guarantee some billions, and on basis of that, there will be uh, uh, there will be bonds issued by the EIB. So another 200 billion, and then 100 billion of an unemployment reinsurance scheme. So those who are particularly affected by uh, by unemployment, and that will be Spain and countries like that, can actually get support from this. Below you see how the, the, the Commission itself has, you know, scrambled together some money that it still had in its budget, has reduced, has uh, made the state aid measures more lenient, relaxed the fiscal rules, and has allowed to use structural funds much more flexibly. And not to forget the European Central Bank against uh, another German constitutional court ruling insists in that it will pump 750 billion uh, more into uh, the economy and no longer look at also having to always to buy German bonds when that makes no sense anymore, but actually buys uh, for countries that need it most. So things are moving and I haven't even mentioned something that we will probably come to funnily enough, it come, doesn't come up right now, that is that recovery and resilience facility that the Commission has just proposed and a smaller one uh, supported by the Franco-German couple and the Spaniards double what the Commission wanted. In any case, it is the discussion of whether we have for the first time a common issue that is kind of part of the of the uh, budget of the EU and this would be truly an a new step in building fiscal capacity, namely uh, raising debt in order to give out grants on a scale that was just not there before. Thank you very much. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Waltraud. So now we're moving to Simon Glendening for the last presentation. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, very interesting hearing from my colleagues. And some of my remarks, although they will be of a characteristically philosophical or theoretical nature uh, at, at some distance from what they said, there are some interesting overlaps. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the way the pandemic has drawn people together and questioning, uh, asking whether it's uh, drawn the people and peoples of Europe close together. And I'm going to go through three little steps. One, uh, a sort of data moment, uh, looking at some data on whether we're all becoming uh, more European in Europe. Uh, a second uh, part on um, the coercive power of the state, something that Chris had talked about, 
And then finally, something of a philosophical or perhaps even theological nature about one's duties towards one's neighbours, which is close to some of the things Valtrad was talking about in terms of solidarity. Now we're going to try and put up a slide, unlike Chris and Valtrad, I'm not technically competent and I'm on an iPad here, but I'm going to try and share a couple of things. Here's the first one. This is a little uh, table of data from the Eurobarometer of uh, an EU average response to four questions asking the people there, uh, questioning whether they feel going from left to right here, European only, European and then their nationalities inserted, or the other way around, their nationality first and then feel European, or whether they feel national only. So European only to national only with the two variations in the middle, one led by European first and then nationality, or then secondly national first and then European. And I just want to draw out a, um, a couple of things from this. The first is that if we look at the national only figures, we're looking now uh, for a period from 2010 up to 2019, um, we can see an overall decline in the number of Europeans who are identifying themselves as uh, national only. The overall number for those who think of themselves primarily as national, that is either national and European plus national only. So the overall number for those who think of themselves primarily in a national way, that's very stable over this period and it's just under 90%, 90%, which is a very large number. And if you're gonna remember any number from what I'm going to say in the next few minutes, that near 90% is the one I want you to keep in mind. The European only figure at the other end, it's gonna be quite easy to remember because <laughs> it's very small and uh, also very stable. Around, it's stable around 2%. Uh, but in proportion to the overall decline of the national only figure, uh, the national and European is increasing. So that's the first uh, bit of data that I wanted to get on the table. And I'm going to do another one, though, for fun, because of who's with me today, my wonderful German colleagues. Now, uh, looking at this table, we have... Uh, the data uh, done by country, and we have the UK and, the, and Germany for the very, very same questions, whether you consider yourself European only, uh, for the UK ones, European and, uh, and British, uh, British and European or British only, and then for the Germans, same questions, but with Germany. Um, Germany and the UK have unbelievably uh, different national stories, and I, I take that to be reflected somewhat in the data here. Uh, but overall, very interestingly, very similar trajectories in the movement of the national only numbers, a 20% drop in both Britain and Germany in, in only a decade in the national only column, and a corresponding rise in the uh, the other two national columns, the national and European, or European and uh, national. I also think it's worth you having a look at the UK column post-Brexit. Uh, the UK European first and then national uh, took an amazing tip up 
through the Brexit process. Um, overtaking Germany late in 2018 for a bit on the number of people who saw themselves as European first and then national, which is a really crazy situation where on leaving the EU, Britain suddenly, or a lot of Britons, suddenly found their European spirit. Anyway, that's enough of the uh, data. <laughs> but as I say, the, the number that I really want you to take away from all that is the 90% of EU citizens who think of themselves in a, in a primarily national way. And I think that if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's shown the ongoing significance of the nation state as the place of politics that's primarily important. No other power has the coercive power of the nation state that could order people to go into lockdown in the way that Chris described it. Now, he also showed that what level of coercive power was actually deployed um, varied in time and across Europe. And as we saw in the UK, it was a very light touch at the start. And that, that could have been a real disaster here. But the whole affair here with uh, uh, Dominic Cummings uh, was about the fact that uh, dutiful obedience by so many when we were told to uh, stay at home, obedience that meant that some citizens in the UK underwent the most desperate and heartbreaking distress, unable to visit loved ones who were dying and so on. That dutiful obedience shown by them was not being respected by the very power that had demanded it of them. And that was a, a really difficult situation uh, socially. But that position where the uh, uh, sovereign power, the one who uh, makes the coercive laws um, that everybody else must obey, they're, they're themselves, as it were, uh, not being um, themselves required to obey the things that they're doing. That power to make coercive laws does have to be made freely. Uh, without coercion, otherwise it's not a sovereign power at all. So at the very moment when coercive law is made, it must in a certain way be suspended. And so you have, a, as it were, a possible lawlessness of the sovereign, um, it having to be free at the very moment that it's most coercive, uh, that's, as it were, witnessed in that Cummings uh, moment, but which is also necessary for it to be a state. A certain kind of lawlessness is absolutely essential to it being a sovereign power, for a sovereign to be a sovereign or for a sovereign state to be a sovereign state. But it's also what makes the state of the sovereign state always open to abuses of power. And so we end up with a situation where a sovereign has to be, in a certain way, the most fearful uh, beast, uh, what, what Hobbes called a leviathan. And the point, though, is that in order for people to live without fear of being bludgeoned by their neighbours or, or infected by their neighbours, this fear-making power of uh, the sovereign must be the monopoly of the sovereign beast. So you don't want to be bludgeoned by your neighbours and you don't want to catch a virus from them. And so you have this extraordinary power of coercive law in a sovereign power. And this take me to my last theme, which is about neighbours. Neighbours 
not only the man or woman next door who uh, you need in some way to be protected from because otherwise they could be a constant threat to you, but also uh, other sovereign powers, other nations uh, next to you who similarly um, could be uh, someone who exists as a kind of standing threat to you. And the first question uh, that I'd ask, invite you to think about for yourself and for uh, Chris and uh, uh, Ezra and Valtrad also to think about is um, among the sovereign states of Europe, uh, which one has the most neighbours? Other sovereign powers surrounding it, surrounding it that might want to bludgeon it? Well, uh, the, the answer is Germany, uh, which has uh, nine nine land border neighbours. It has maritime borders with two more. The UK, by contrast, has uh, just one, um, one land border, which is with Ireland through the partition of Ireland. That, that border is, of course, the only uh, border that Ireland has as well. So UK and uh, Ireland both have just one land neighbour. That little, little border between uh, a part of the UK and Ireland uh, is as a result of this um, also the border between the UK and the EU and it was always going to be a massive figure of the whole difficulty of Brexit and being a neighbour here is going to make it a fundamental issue in the politics of both and indeed of all of us. So I want to uh, have a last word then on um, neighbours. One of the things that Ezra talked about was solidarity and, and what might be expected of us uh, in relation to our neighbours, uh, our European neighbours specifically. And uh, this recalls at least at some level um, the, uh, one of the most famous verses in the Hebrew Bible in Leviticus, which is the command to love thy neighbour as oneself, uh, a commandment that uh, was identified by Christ too as one of the two great commandments of the Mosaic law. With its uh, roots in Low German, the word neighbor in English comes from the old English near Gabor. Near meaning uh, near, and Boer meaning peasant or, or farmer. In English and in fact in German, the neighbor is the near one the familiar one near you, the one on the next farm. And love thy neighbour uh, then might seem to be about loving the near one, the one's fellow, the semblable, as they'd say in French, uh, love the similar. Some of the thought then that love thy neighbour is about welcoming the ones who are near me or already near me or similar to me. And one might think that this near other is what the Bible is referring to. And it might even be a kind of idea that belongs inside the European Union with the idea of the ever closer union among the peoples of Europe is a kind of uh, hope that we'll all become Europeans by learning to love our neighbour as ourselves. So Leviticus, it has this love thy neighbour idea. Uh, neighbour though there, translates the Hebrew word uh, re-acha. Uh, so what's the meaning of re-acha here? 
uh, does it refer, for example, in the Hebrew text only to uh, Jews? Or is it a universal, like all human beings? Uh, there's some who read it as referring only to uh, Jews. This would be supported by some of the context where it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take revenge or feel resentment against Benai Em Amichah, which is the children of your own people. You shall love Re Achah as yourself. Now the Re Achah there, the scope of it's very unclear, but there's further verses of Leviticus uh, seem to me to change it quite considerably away from uh, Benai Amecha, the love of your people. Uh, there we're told, if a stranger lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The stranger who resides with you should be like an... Should, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So here, the one we should love as yourself, not the sombla, the, the nearby, but the distant, the stranger, the foreigner, the one who's foreign to you, not similar to you. And we're to love the stranger because we're already, all, all, all of us originally displaced people and we remain displaceable people. So the re-acha is the one whom hospitality should be given the other, the stranger, the stranger in a strange land that we all are originally ourselves. And I think this is the sort of ethical meaning of a Schengen, actually, uh, with, with a policy of open borders. But we should remember that this welcome to our place of the neighbour is not unconditional. An open border is not no border. It is open only because it is closable. The host, to be a host at all, must have the power to select. So wherever there is uh, hospitality, we have to have uh, conditionality. That's, as it were, part of what makes a host a host. Now, that's not an argument for abolishing uh, rights, the rights of uh, hospitality, since that would abolish hospitality. Um, but for hospitality to be possible, there must be a host. And as soon as there is a host, then hospitality cannot be unconditional. In short, the call for an unconditional hospitality, a no border policy as a state policy, would not only be very pious, it would actually be completely empty. As long as there are states, there are cultures of conditional hospitality. And the call to love one's neighbour is a sovereign command, as it were, uh, for such states to exercise their sovereign power in deciding how to live that interdependence. Now, my own view is that the EU is an institutional expression of that state power. It's about securing and preserving the power of states to be sovereign powers without becoming unlawlike beasts to each other to their neighbours in the process. And that's why I've always thought that a, a federation of free states in Europe should be the goal of ever closer union, not a single massive leviathan of a federal state. Limited sovereignty through membership of the European Union. Sovereignty that puts the beast on a leash, as it were, that simultaneously binds us together, remains, I think, the cause of peace 
both at home uh, and abroad. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. We had three fantastic uh, presentations approaching from different angles. Uh, so we'll now open the floor to questions from the audience. So please do type them in the Q&A box and we'll try to answer as many as possible. And please include your name and affiliation. And already we have 16 questions, which is fantastic. Um, so how I will do is I will pose three questions at a time to the panel and then you can, um, you know, so we'll do rounds. Please uh, try to be brief so that we can try to answer as many questions as possible. So now I'll exploit my position for chairing and pose the first question. Um, Waltraud and Simon talked a lot about solidarity, um, neighborhood, um, uh, whatnot. So going through Black Lives Matter, it brings the question that in nation states, uh, people did not experience COVID-19 in the same way, especially um, in the UK and, and in the US, the, the differences of how um, racial uh, and ethnic minorities have experienced it totally differently um, is clear. And in some cases, there has been solidarity, but we have also seen that in both countries, the governments, um, um, you know, is not really facing up to these um, uh, inequalities. Um, I did not follow the continental Europe so closely, but if any of you want to talk more about these kinds of solidarities, you know, the, the divisions, the racial and ethnic divisions within Europe uh, sometimes reach, um, can be even more dividing uh, than the national boundaries. So if you wanted to comment on that. So that is number one. So I'll read two more questions. Jim Alayo Arnabat, um, an LSE alumnus, is asking, will COVID-19 see the demise of the EU? Will the different approaches and disagreements amongst EU members about how to manage COVID-19 and the likely harsh economic crisis, um, yeah, will, will lead to deep divisions? Another one, Ahil Damani, thank you for the great, this is to Chris. Um, so he says, while the trends and science is identical across boundaries, how can accurate and fair comparisons be made when the population, demographics, and structures of health systems are different? So if you can, um, in the order of speaking, can um, relate to these as you wish, um, then we'll move to the next set. So would Chris go first? Yes. Okay, happy to. Um, thank you very much for the questions. Um, this, they're tough questions. Um, so the demise of the EU in light of the crisis is sort of a big topic. We should probably have a term long seminar on this. Um, but to give you 30 seconds, uh, my 30 second gut reaction to that is to say uh, the demise of the EU and before that the EC and the EEC has long been mooted. It hasn't yet come about and, and EU politics is crisis politics to some extent. So I'm somewhat skeptical that this is the thing that's gonna undo it. Um, as, a, as, a, as a first reaction quickly, of course, um, the question is what kind of crisis is it really? Because I think it's several crises rolled into one. 
And if we identify it as a public health crisis, it's one thing. If we think of it as a, a global pandemic, it's another thing. If we think of it as a state capacity problem, perhaps it's, it's a third thing. If it's an economic crisis, it's yet, yet something else. Economic crises tend to make people turn inward, tend to make people turn away from the European Union, uh, or at least they used to. And in light of the data that Simon showed, in the, in the light of what we've seen the European Union do in the last 10 years, in terms of building institutions that at some point, not too, in the far too distant future, might enable horizontal redistribution in a serious way, I'm actually somewhat optimistic that this is a crisis that can help us to continue to move forward. Um, so rather than be pessimistic about the future of the European Union, I think this may be a golden opportunity. Um, and in terms of making things difficult to compare across countries in the, in, in the crisis and who's done well and who's done badly and what performance really means and how well governments have done in this crisis, I would say it is true that there are a number of confounding factors. There's a number of variables in play. Uh, statistically speaking, we don't, have enough, we don't have enough degrees of freedom really in the moment to figure out what's what. We can point to correlations. I think there's some obvious patterns in the data at the moment. Those who shut down early did better, for instance, right? That's sort of a, a correlation. I wouldn't give it causal force. Um, but I think it is really hard to do in real time. And I don't think we will know for quite some time. Um, so I think we have to be very, very careful uh, before drawing too many strong causal uh, uh, conclusions from the data that we have at the moment. Um, I don't want to add a lot to that question that um, Chris took first, namely whether the diversity of, of member states and different approaches to health is actually um, furthering the demise of the EU. I mean, I don't know uh, whether the, the corona crisis is, is one that brings the, the EU to its knee. Needs. It has been said before, and I don't believe it, but this is a very serious crisis, and it will be one with, with which we have to deal for the next 10 years at least. But what I do know is that the diversity of, of approaches is an advantage in this, such situations where you have high uncertainty and where you have a body, the EU, that will actually exercise something like called laboratory federalism, where you ex where you where one central ins uh, uh, institution makes sure that we learn from each other's lessons. We are all uncertain of what works. Sweden has had a very different approach from Germany, as Chris showed. And in that sense, it is good to have different tr approaches, but make sure that we learn from each other which one works better in which situation and so on and so forth. I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I, as a social scientist? But we know that from insurance economics, diversity is an advantage if you are in a risk situation. On the first one, this question about ethnic divisions and solidarity. This is what I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about this. We have always the idea when we think of solidarity, oh, we look at each other as humans. But humans come with gender, with age, with ethnicity, what have you. And there is a paradox that we would Actually, in economic terms, an insurance or a risk pool works always the, the better, the more diverse you are and are not all affected at the same time by the same shock. This is actually one of the problems of this COVID uh, uh, virus, that it hits us all at the same time. And we can't, some are not better off and can help the others. 
But politically, it's always more difficult because those who are fortunate, of course, then think they deserve all their good luck and it's all merit and so on. So the paradox is the more it is economically beneficial, namely to be diverse, the more difficult it is to politically realize this, this um, potential. And I think institutions sometimes help to overcome this. So when you want a, um, a social assistance benefit or a healthcare benefit, your col the color of your skin should normally not play a role. Now, at the same time, we also know, and this only research can show you, is that sometimes there are inbuilt institutional biases that lead then to these results that we have just seen uh, that Bangladeshi, the Bangladeshi community has a double the, uh, the likelihood to die when they, when they uh, are infected with, with COVID. And at least the UK has the data. The problem in continental Europe, Ezra, is that Germany, because of its, its, uh, its past, uh, France, because of its Republican uh, ideas, doesn't even have the data because race doesn't exist, right? And so you see there is something uh, that we can all learn from that and I hope everybody will now collect data and see whether there is this, this, in, uh, this unequal effect on, on different communities. Thank you. Simon, do you have something to say? <laughs> Always. Always. Um, um, Actually, I think Valtrell gave a, a, an excellent answer on uh, inequalities of risk there, but I, I think there's probably one point she, which she did mention in passing, which is perhaps worth uh, repeating, which is slightly um, passed over in the question you asked, Ezra, or the, the questioner asked, which is that if we look at inequalities of risk of infection, of death from an infection by COVID, there is one group which is way above all others. And in fact, there's one sort of graph which is the most telling of all others. The high risk group, irrespective of any other human differences, is age. The older you are, the more at risk you are. And that's just completely independent of absolutely everything. So when Valtrad was talking about a human thing, age is a human thing that affects all humans without exception. And the older you are, the more at risk you are. And that's something that has been uh, hidden a little bit in Britain by the extent to which there have been these uh, deaths in um, homes and so in old people's homes and so on. Uh, but in Italy, I think it was a lot more evident to everybody what was happening to older people. And uh, I know in Italy, in, in some parts, they began talking about a lost generation where we'd often talk about the lost generation might be a, a younger generation that missed out on some opportunity losing a complete almost the entirety of a whole generation through death uh, earlier than they would have otherwise i think is the most striking inequality of risk that we might look back on in this time where uh, the number of grandparents and so on that people will have lost uh, the quest the other question that i would take up very briefly would be about um, the end of the eu I always think this is a nuts thought. I, I don't know if it's somebody wants it to happen, but uh, pro probably. On the other hand, um, things that uh, long history of European integration is some kind of uh, effort to uh, interpret, in a way, 
politically um, a, a vague, a beautiful, beautiful vague words, ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. And um, when uh, people talk about the project stalling or not moving ahead or moving ahead, what they mean is in relation to some understanding of whatever closer union would look like. And one of the things that I really wanted to say that this uh, pandemic shows up is, first of all, the extent to which the nation states, the member states remain, um, politically speaking, primarily important. And that if any po political thinker uh, connected to European politics thinks they can overlook that fact or could have overlooked that fact, they certainly can't do now. And I think there's still a, a fascinating struggle going on within Europe over the meaning of that beautiful, those beautiful vague words about whether ever closer union of the peoples, plural, of Europe aims ultimately to get rid of the plural. Or, uh, and so as it were, you'd have a United States of Europe where we're just all Europeans. If you remember the data that I showed you at the beginning, 2% of Europeans on average regard themselves as European only. To be honest, I think it's just like a sort of, perhaps now, but perhaps, I don't know for how long, a fantasy project to think that uh, um, the drawing us together that could happen, that Valtrad was talking about in terms of solidarity mechanisms that could happen through the pandemic, the idea that move us closer to that kind of idea of ever closer union, I think remains beyond uh, imagination. But a united Europe of states, that other vision of what, as it were, final integration is, a united Europe of states, that seems to me still uh, very much uh, uh, healthy and alive, even if uh, my own country seems to have completely lost its way with respect to it. And the EU is an institution of cooperation between sovereign states who give up some sovereignty in order to maintain the peace of the whole. And I think it's a a great thing and it's not going anywhere. Okay, excellent. So let's move on to the next set. So here's a brief question uh, to Chris from Jakub Tomasek, an incoming MSc student in political economy of Europe. He's asking, in terms of maintaining the public support, which European governments have done the best and which have done the worst job and why? Um, um, Risto Uluk, uh, LSE Philosophy and Public Policy Master's student. How much has, ah, as I'm asking this move, sorry. How much has propaganda and fake news influenced interpersonal solidarity in Europe? At the beginning of the crisis in Italy, I noticed a lot of activity from anonymous members on Twitter talking about how much China, Russia, and Cuba have helped Italy, whereas the EU has done nothing. Nobody, of course, shared any legitimate sources for those claims. Um, let's see. Um, Ayla Girl, um, our uh, alumni from International Relations. Um, her question follows up from Professor Schalke's point on moral opportunity, reflecting on the lack of EU's collective response and solidarity. Does she think the EU missed a moral opportunity during the COVID? What does this tell us for the future solidarity of Europe? So let's again go in the same order, if you don't mind. And if you feel like this, none of these questions apply to you, feel free to pass, because we do have, now we have 22 questions. <laughs> Chris. 
Lots of questions. Um, it's really interesting. Um, it's really hard to say what it means to do well uh, in handling a crisis because we're right in the middle of it. Um, I showed you the rally around the flag that we saw early in the crisis. And, and, and some of that has gone away as, as the crisis has evolved and, and developed. Um, but the other thing that's really important to keep in mind about all of this is that these governments start from very, very different baselines. So a, a, a Macron uh, starts from a very low approval baseline. He doesn't have a strong political party behind him, a strong social base behind him. So his approval ratings have always been very, very low. So what does it mean for him to have done well in the crisis? Have 40%, 45% approval? Um, so benchmarks and so baselines uh, are really, really important in this, in this context, um, in their domestic political uh, context. Um, uh, there are the obvious ones. I think the obvious ones that have done well include the German government. I think Frau Merkel has done, uh, sort of had an amazing uh, sort of end of her career here with this pandemic, where she's universally celebrated as having handled it very, very well. Um, I think uh, in UK, we've seen the, the, the upside down U um, that, that I talked about earlier. Let me show you my screen really quickly. Literally, as we were talking just now, I uh, pulled up some YouGov data on, I don't know if you can see this, um, government and whether the government is considered to have done well uh, in handling this crisis. And you can see um, from this, from the early sort of beginning of the crisis to right around now, um, this real diversity in, in how people feel about their government having done well. So the Spanish government, the French government sort of toward the bottom. But you see the Scandinavian countries uh, quite far up, right? So I think generally, uh, we would we would say that uh, Scandinavian publics have been quite happy with their governments, and then also the German government. But it's a um, you know it's it's much too early to tell how how this is going to shake out when all is said and done. Um, I want to briefly uh, respond to the fake news. At the bottom of this first screenshot I show you from the EU response, there is a whole web page where the EU now goes against fake news and actually cooperates with Facebook and Twitter and all them to go against these things and clarify stories. So they have, have realized that it is a problem if they are not addressing this uh, directly. And so the answer to your question is yes, it is a problem for solidarity if you have all these lies around like the perception in Germany that they have basically paid for all these um, uh, credits to Southern Europe when, you know, Italy has guaranteed its share of the bond issue that financed the credit to Spain or to, to, it, uh, to Greece and Ireland, just like Germany did. They were in exactly the same boat and so did France and everybody. Uh, but there is the notion, oh, we, we bankrolled the whole thing. And of course, that, that is then difficult if you say there is the next big crisis and that the figures get so, you know, nauseatingly big, uh, then you need to go against this and, and make it clear. Uh, moral opportunity has the EU missed? No, I mean, if anything, I would like to say the EU chooses now, and I mean by that the Commission, but also the nine countries that immediately signed an open letter and said we need a Corona bond, a jointly issued bond. Uh, everybody is now trying to use this as an opportunity to, to uh, 
bring solidarity forward to an extent that you can say, well, it has to be carried at home as well. And so I would also like to say, as much as I'm in favor of this, there should be a kind of categorical imperative that you do not propose something at the EU level that you can't do yourself at home. And this is, for example, true for the, for the French president. I mean, he pushes a lot for things. And to some extent, I like that because he's not a, the, France is, is a country that has not and will not need to benefit anytime soon from these bailout funds or these facilities we create. And yet it supports uh, the creation. But at home, it is extremely actually more unpopular than in Germany. And so you have to be a bit careful how you how you push things forward because it can create a backlash and we are a union of democracies and will remain so and it has to be respected. Simon, you want to say something? Yeah, just uh, one thing on the solidarity uh, point, which is sort of a sort of clarification and, and also to keep it in relation perhaps to the theme of the neighbour that I talked about. Um, Solidarity uh, is perhaps in some ways thought best thought through the idea of the one who is beside you. Uh, so the, the next door farm, as it were, is the farm next door, the one that uh, adjoins your farm. Um, and uh, solidarity relations are about a kind of standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody. It's not, um, it's not that I'm just going to take over their farm because their farm's falling apart, right? So... I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to make their farm work and 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 say I'm doing this out of solidarity. And they might say yeah, that's that's not exactly what I called for. Uh, so solidarity has to be about uh, helping out the other in a time of need, um, but in a way that doesn't overwhelm them uh, with the kind of tsunami of disempowerment. It's allow, allowing them to get back on their feet, not a way of removing their feet altogether. And so I think we've got to remember that solidarity can get misused in a lot of these contexts where it's a sort of um, an, a conceptual instrument for an underhand movement which disempowers the state by uh, saying, well, you, you're in all this trouble, we're gonna take over this uh, uh, moment for you. And uh, I think that uh, we've got to look each time in each case as it were, a, uh, efforts at solidarity, whether they're trying to enable a country to get back on its feet, to protect and secure its capacity to be a, uh, a, a sovereign power, or whether actually it's trying to remove that from it. Obviously, a, a sovereign power can uh, agree with other sovereign powers to limit their own sovereignty, and that, that I think, is the great invention of the European Union um, and will remain so. Uh, but um, we've just got to check whether solidarity is, is really this relation to the neighbour or whether you're just taking over their farm. Okay, uh, Chris, did you want to add something? Just a quick thought, and this may be kind of a crazy thought, so maybe this is something for, the, for all of us to think about, but um, I think none of this, what, what we're talking about right now, is happening in a vacuum. It's also happening in the context of the enormous protests that are happening around the world uh, in the wake of the George Floyd killing uh, in the United States, uh, in the context of an American democracy that seems to be going off the rails a little bit. Um, and there seems to be a moment here, at least it feels that way to me as somebody who studies uh, people and politics, 
um, that there is also a real desire here, not just for solidarity horizontally between North and South in Europe, but also then uh, in, in the uh, differential um, uh, ways in which uh, different communities have been affected by the virus, for instance, right? So we have we've talked about older people. We also need to talk about people uh, sort of minority ethnic status, right? Um, and, and how that affects things uh, and being affected by the virus. But then also more generally sort of citizenship and whether full citizenship really is something that everyone has an uh, opportunity to take advantage of uh, across countries. Um, it feels to me that there are a lot of things that are coming together right now that revolve around uh, people calling for um, uh, not just solidarity from others, but simply that the rights that they have be fully, uh, fully enforced and fully given by the state. Um, and it's a, it, that makes it a really, really interesting historical moment. I think we'll look back on this 10, 20 years from now and find that these, that these moments, the George Floyd, the differential susceptibility to the virus, the ways in which governments have handled the virus and or how the European Union handles this tie together in interesting ways. Okay, thank you. So let's move to the next set of question. questions. Astrid Favela from Italy. She's an LSE alumnus from European Institute. Um, to Waltraud, given the moral opportunity Lanza suggested, will this would this possibly also lead to an increased favor for the EU cross-border healthcare in the post-crisis period from single member states? Then Bleron Manzelihu, uh, again uh, our alumni, developing economies like those in the Western Balkans, even though they run on modest budgets and weaker welfare state support compared to the EU average, <laughs> are showing to deal with the pandemic crisis quite successfully, thanks to the solidarity among people and the resilience of government institutions. Do you think a more generous welfare state or more robust safety nets in the EU member countries are diminishing solidarity among people and the sense of belonging among communities? Um, finally, from Parvindar Kalra, from the data you have seen, you have showed us so far, it, are there any patterns around which country was most effective in managing the pandemic, both in terms of the number of deaths and economic policies to handle? Um, yes, so these three. Chris, you are first again. Okay. Um, these are tough questions. Um, I, think, I, I think we all would like to know the answer to all of these things with some degree of certainty, um, but let me give it a, a try. Um, the, the interesting question I find is the one about solidarity um, and the extent to which perhaps states are able to handle the crisis without a lot of state intervention or without the state necessarily having to provide um, solidarity. The Swedish example seems to say no. Um, that does seem, yeah, solidarity is great, um, but the right strategy helps as well. But part of what I hear in the question too is a sort of a, and, and I'm not saying that you, you, the question is, is saying this, but this idea that maybe too much welfare is, is, is not good because it diminishes solidarity. Um, here, I think I would say we need to differentiate between capacity and solidarity and, and social bonds. Um, and I think states that have 
better and bigger capacity or better able to deal with any kind of public health crisis. Capacity is important, regardless of level of solidarity. Solidarity helps, but in the absence of state capacity, solidarity will only go so far, I would say. So I think obviously you would want both. Um, and I think I'm gonna hand it on to my fellow panelists. On that note, solidarity. Hello, Blairon. Nice to hear from you. Um, the, I mean, this has often been a conservative critique of the welfare state, that actually by substituting institutionally, uh, we all can lean back and don't give the beggar anything or something like that, uh, and don't engage ourselves in personal support of others. I mean, first of all, one has seen amazing examples of how here the f almost the first day I was here yourself isolating you're not alone was through my letterbox right people who did immediately organize neighborhood help on the contrary I think our sensibilities have so risen through the welfare state that we do feel for example a certain level of health care of care everybody deserves you know old age used to be a something where people wait for death totally dependent in a family okay but you know not much else today we do think this is a, a third or fourth phase of our lives in which we have a right to be active and get all the good uh, uh, medical progress that we can get and the moral opportunity perspective would say actually i'm in favor of the welfare state i'm happy to pay my taxes for it because that gives solidarity to people i don't see but who deserve to be helped Cross-border healthcare, Astrid, uh, nice to see you as well. Um, yes, I mean, the, EU, the commission, as you would expect, is already pushing for it. But I think this will actually be something beyond the EU. And the EU would be wise to strengthen the WHO because this pandemic is a first one. People have talked before that, I didn't know that literature either, but now I know. Uh, just think of this viral resistance to antibiotics. It may be that we have this every few years as actually uh, communities in Africa have. You know, that every six, seven years, they have one of these uh, pandemics or regional pandemics that we now experience for the first time. And therefore you need structures that do not respect any borders, neither the European or any other. And I think in line also with what, what um, uh, what Chris earlier said with his supposedly crazy thought, which was a very reasonable point, we see suddenly a connection between social issues, health issues, and so on, that we haven't seen, we, we wouldn't have an experience of and would only know abstractly of, but now people have experienced it. And that's what they also go to on, on demonstrations here against racism and so on. And our a uh, briefing last week from our director of the school was about this. I had not expected it, naturally, because I'm a white person. She herself had an experience with racism as a child. And so this was something on her mind. And she reminded us all of this, which is something I have to admit was not I, uh, the first thing I would have expected from her briefing. And it was good that she reminded us of that. And sometimes that's that's the silver lining in such terrible uh, situations like this crisis, that you see things you haven't seen or knew only abstractly before. Simon? Yes, I want to uh, take up uh, this uh, question about um, 
differences between different countries in their response and, and how one might uh, estimate their uh, successes and failures and so on. One of the things that Chris mentioned at the beginning of our discussion was about that the uh, lockdown effectively was this extraordinary uh, uh, removal of liberties uh, to individual citizens. And I tried to say how no power except for the coercive power of the state could have ordered people to stay at home in that way and people do it. Nothing else could have done that. I also mentioned that what level of coercive power had actually been deployed um, varied considerably across Europe. And I think probably when we look at the uh, successes and failures, uh, an awful lot is actually going to wind up being um, rather culturally specific rather than, as it were, political um, policy specific. I mean, there's for, for without a doubt, the UK's late start has been a massive, uh, had massive effects on its efforts to um, produce an adequate health policy. On the other hand, um, in economic policy, the government went quite quickly and may indeed have been relatively successful. So, you know, it's not just about health, actually. There'll be long-term issues resulting from uh, economic policy too. So I think uh, the thing that I'd sort of I'd invite myself, as it were, to think through would be to think about how, uh, as it were, national cultural, roughly speaking, to general way, national cultural differences uh, made a difference to the kinds of stringency that would be locally acceptable, to uh, how um, to the deployment of state power uh, in health policy. You know, can you have uh, police on the street trying to clear people. Can you have this or that? Any little things. In some places, they didn't even try certain things because it would have just been, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have gone down well, as it were, in a population who they're saying stay at home. So you've got. The, you've got I, I think it'd be very interesting to look not only at health policy, but as it were, the um, state culture of the state. And in, in the UK, for example. It, you could see from the governing party there was these, this sort of concernful resistance inside themselves to taking away individual liberties since it, in a way that's what their politics is all about. There's this huge liberty tradition inside them. And so the removal of liberties, how far that can go and what means you can use to um, uh, coerce people uh, will be different in different places. So that, that's, uh, that's just my little addition there. I see Chris wants to come in, so we should let him. Just a quick one. Um, it's just such an interesting topic because what is a fact? Uh, one of the things that we, we will uh, be, be needing to think about is what, what are the facts that we can believe? And uh, so this, this idea that expertise has been resurrected, that scientists have been resurrected as an important part of public debate also goes hand in hand with this idea that journalism is incredibly important in this day and age. Um, a lot of people, when, when Trump got elected in the US thought journalism was dead, but in, if anything, uh, subscription rates to newspapers have gone through the roof. And one of the interesting things about these times has been a, a, a real hunger and a real demand by the public to know the facts. Um, and that is really interesting too politically because governments can't hide as well when the facts are known. Of course, they will make attempts to make things appear in as good a light as possible, but the, the, this, this idea that um, 
we can be manipulated, um, I think is really, um, uh, doesn't really stand up. And that's, that's a really interesting aspect of what, we, what we're dealing with here. Okay, thank you so much, everyone. This has been a very stimulating uh, debate. Um, yeah, so I thank everyone to participate, to ask questions um, for attending. So our next uh, European Institute events, Six Political Philosophies in Search of a Virus, Critical Perspectives on the Coronavirus Pandemic will take place on 15th of June. For more information, please visit the EI event page. Thank you.